We talk about love a lot here. If you've been here for two weeks in a row, you'll also have noticed that we repeat ourselves a lot here. Yeah, and it's not to give us an easy job up at the front. It's not because there isn't more to say, but it's because we want to remember. It's because we need to remember that the God of the universe loves us and that the great invitation on our lives is to love him back with all that we are. We pause every Sunday and repeat those words together because we need to remember. Because we step into Monday and like a dripping tap, the truth can just leak out of us and we can forget his love. Or the very real worries and concerns of our life can grow up around us like weeds and it's hard to see his love. Or other voices come in to deny or dilute his love or whatever way he wants to do it the enemy will steal and kill and destroy and we forget that the God of the universe loves us and our love goes elsewhere we believe here at Rehope we believe that the Bible ultimately tells the story of an incredibly holy God who loves the world that he made and the people that he made we believe that Jesus when he walked the earth and died on a cross for us we believe that he was the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his love for us and we believe that when he was on the earth he actually told us how to live he told us the best way and that it was to love God back with all that we are as we press pause today in our revelation series surprise we are pressing pause today in our revelation series I would love us just to spend a little bit of time thinking about wholehearted devotion. <clears throat> wholehearted devotion. What would it be like if we really did love God back with all that we are? God's desire for our wholehearted devotion is something that runs through the entire Bible story. And for me, it's been something that I've wrestled with, that I've chewed on since I rededicated my life to Jesus when I was about 17. I think it's something that the Holy Spirit keeps bringing me back to because it's not something that comes naturally to me but it, it's what God wants from me more than anything. It's what he wants most of all. And it's been something I've been thinking about again this week because Brian in his message last week on the seven trumpets said something like, we run the risk of wanting to do the Christian thing without fully submitting to Jesus as our king. And if we do that, then we miss it. When I was thinking about what to share today, I had a million thoughts in my head. I don't know if you guys find that when you're given sort of an open choice. I had a million different thoughts in my head and I was wondering, okay, we're in this crazy season as a church where we have lots of new people coming in and we're sending people out and starting new churches. Do I, do I talk about church as family as we try to get to know each other here? Do I talk about church as family or as we seek God and how to be better at reaching our neighbors with the gospel? Do I try to talk about evangelism or as we look at serving teams with space, where we need people to come and serve here, do I talk about serving? Do I talk about um, church as Jesus' body, as his hands and feet? But when I considered it all, and I might talk about those things at another time, I, I found myself fixated instead on a short story from Mark chapter 14 about a woman who comes with an expensive jar of perfume and anoints Jesus with oil. A simple demonstration of love to Jesus and as I read that story as she pours out the oil as she pours out the expensive perfume just the still small voice of Jesus saying will you pour yourself out for me will you love me with all that you are because we can learn about all the things and we can think about all the things and we can do church really well and we can serve and we can give and we can attend and we can read our Bibles and we can try really hard but if God only has half of our hearts I think we've missed it 
Mike Pilavachi, he's a cool guy, he said, don't settle for superficial Christianity. It's the most boring thing in the world. Go for broke. I want to go for broke. I want my life to be marked by wholehearted devotion. I want to be all in with Jesus if I'm going to be anything at all with Jesus. And I would love for this place to be somewhere where we can learn together and be trained together to love God back with all that we are. Because I believe that God meets the fullness of our devotion with the fullness of who he is, and there's always more to discover. Okay, when you meet someone for the first time, what do you want to know? What do you ask someone if you meet them for the first time? Um, Caitlin has just started on staff a couple of weeks ago, so we've been bonding, we've been getting to know each other, it's been great. Um, she's American, so she's not like squeamish about asking questions or starting conversations, which some, sometimes we can be. Um, so she asks good questions. She asks things like, what's your favorite movie? What sort of music do you like? Things like that, good questions. Um, I met a man called John in July, and his opening line to me was, what's your favorite color and your worst sin? To which I thought, less great, not so good. I'm not going to put that in my book of things I'm going to ask people when I meet them. When I meet people, I like to ask them about what they love. What do you love? Where do you love to go? Who do you love to spend time with? What do you love to eat? I like to ask people about the, what they love because I like to have an accelerated knowledge of that person. I like to get to know someone quickly so that then I can like, be a good friend and be a nice person to be around. And I think that when you get to know something of what someone loves, then you get to know something of that person because who we are is so much connected to what we love. So, for those of you who maybe don't know me, I'm aware that um, some of us are new here tonight. If you don't know me, my name's Laura. I am the lead pastor here. I don't do this all the time, but I sometimes do, which is fun. And uh, my first love was Cats the Musical on video. Um, I binge-watched it for the entire summer of 1998, which when you're seven, I'm pretty sure equates to like an adult decade. <laughs> I watched it until the videotape broke and my heart along with it. My longest love has been Pick and Mix Sweets. So I love Pick and Mix Sweets. So my nanny lives in Antrim. And when we would go and visit her once a week, she would have a goodie bag for me and my brother, and it was just full of sweets. But like those sweets that only your nanny finds, like you don't even know what shop sells them, but they're like foamy fruity things, and they're like little chews wrapped up individually, and all of those kind of things, but you love it because you, you know it's your nanny. So that was great, that was when I loved Blossomed. Um, I was in Tesco's once, filling one of those, you know those like magical cups that they brought in a few years ago where it was like, you know, fill the cup for three pounds. And you're like, this is great. Well, I was in Tesco's one night uh, back home in Belfast and I was filling the cup. And of course it is an art form to fill the cup. So you take that big uh, sour, like red loop you put that right at the bottom because that just like perfectly fits at the bottom and then you get anything pencil shaped so like the strawberry pencils just line it right the way around the edge of the cup like a wall then anything me anything like in the middle any medium sized sweet will do just like fill it up right to the top and then you get the small sweets like uh, chocolate covered raisins jelly beans anything like that and you pour them all in at the end and then you shake it and they all fall down the bottom and fill all the gaps and then you put the lid on and it's just like solid sweet there is no air. That is how you do that well. That is a 10 out of 10 pick, pick and mix cup. So I was doing this one night in Tesco's and it takes a little bit of time because you know it's an art. Um, so I was doing that before going to the cinema and suddenly I was aware that I was being watched by the security guard. And I thought, oh no, this is not my favorite. This is maybe because I'm trying to jam the lid on and it's not shutting and he's gonna tell me that I'm stealing sweets and this is gonna be awful and I'm gonna cry. Um, so 
doing this. I was also an adult at this time, I should specify. Okay, so I'm jamming, I'm jamming the lid on and he's approaching me and he comes up behind me and like he's like way taller than me and he's a security guard. He's dressed as a security guard in the costume and everything. And he's, he stands behind me. The uniform. Oh, there's one in the building. Don't tell. He stands behind me. And he's like, and I'm like, I'm like shaking like a leaf. I'm terrified. I'm absolutely terrified. I've never been in trouble. I hate it. And he stands behind me and he's like, do you know if you put jelly beans in at the end and shake it, they'll go to the bottom and you can get more in. And I was like, yes, <laughs> sir, we are connected on a soul level. Never saw him again, but he's great. Um, my unrequited love, um, Kian Egan from Westlife. Uh, anyone? under 25, or he's the one doing this, um, not from Northern Ireland. Uh, Westlife were a band in the 90s. They had a really good thing going for a while. They sat on stools and sang songs they didn't write, um, and young Laura loved that. So I really liked Kane. I was, uh, everyone else loved Nicky, and I'm a bit of a non-conformist, so I picked Kane. And I put his poster on my bedroom door, and I thought that we were destined to be together because he always looked at me when I looked at him. He always looked at me when I looked at him, and then someone someday was like, Laura, that's just how photographs work. He's looking at the camera, not at you. Shook. Life changed. Unrequited love. Not destined to be together. Still unrequited. Quite sad. My deepest love, or my current love, is actually brunch. Um, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time, but um, potbelly for lemon hotcakes, roasted bubbly jocks for cooked breakfast, calf for a scandy plate, meadow road for eggs, space for banana bread, cafe strange brew for pancakes, and paper cup for French toast, if you're wondering. That's where to eat brunch in Glasgow. So now that you know a little bit of what I love, you might feel like you have a little bit of a firmer grasp on who I am as a person and you're never gonna come back. <laughs> a guy called James Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And in it, he writes about and he tackles the commonly held uh, assumption that people are primarily thinking things. And he says instead, he argues that we are not thinking things, but we're loving things. And we don't think our way through the world so much as we love our way through the world and we worship our way through the world. And his thinking, his book is new, but his thinking is not new. Um, Augustine, well-known bishop and theologian from the fourth century, he wrote in his book, Confessions, uh, this about God. He wrote, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I'd say to love is to be human. And it's not a question of whether or not you love, but what you love is ultimate. We are what we love because we pursue what we love. Humans are teleological creatures. It means we have a telos, some sort of goal or thing that we desire that we go after. We're not static in how we approach life. We are approaching something. We're approaching something that's a vision of the good life, a vision of human flourishing, something that we want, something that we desire, and we go after it. We are what we love and we pursue what we love, and so it matters what and how we love and it matters whether we love God with a wholehearted devotion or not. And suddenly if we think, okay, we are what we love, we're, we love our way through the world, Christian discipleship becomes much less a matter of acquiring information and more to do with learning how to love. In following Jesus, thankfully, we get to enter into a relationship with the rabbi who can teach us how to love through the Holy Spirit in us over a lifetime. Jesus' disciples, when he was on the earth, they learned from him by imitation and practice. We've just finished reading through the Gospels together in Bible Read Through, and I love following the disciples because they're just so human. And in their story, you see them at the beginning and even at the end, moments where they just do not love Jesus well. 
but they learn to love him by imitation and practice. They have their teacher to imitate and they have new ways of life to practice. And eventually for some of them, their love is so well taught that it will lead some of them to their own crosses. That's how wholehearted their devotion becomes to him. And I have found my, uh, my learning of how to love Jesus back with all that I am comes through imitation and practice too, lots of practice. And my hope tonight, my prayer tonight as we look at the word of God is that the Holy Spirit here would identify something for us, would nudge us in a way that we can uh, imitate something new or practice something new or take a step forward in loving God with all that we are. I'm going to read um, a short story from Mark chapter 14. Uh, the story is also in the other Gospels, but I'm going to stick to Mark's account for today. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have your own Bibles, please do use them. So Mark 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So to set the scene, this is the last story that Mark tells before the Last Supper. Jesus has already answered uh, the religious leaders who come and question him and say, what's the most important commandment? He said, it's to love God back with all that you are. And at this point in the story, he's very much on his way to the cross. A few things um, as I looked at this passage again this week that really struck me. The first thing is, that wholehearted devotion comes out in lavish worship. We're led by our love. We're directed by our desires. Augustine wrote before Newton named, discovered gravity, but he wrote about how things are led by their weight to where they are at rest. And he said this about love. He said, my weight is my love. Wherever I'm carried, my love is carrying me. And he related it to things like a rock falling to the ground or oil rising to the top of water. And the woman in this story is carried by her love to an extravagant, over-the-top, all-in expression of worship to Jesus. It's not by logic, it's not by a sense of duty, it's not religious observance, it's not even spontaneous recklessness, it's from love that she does it. And every gospel account, a few common threads, one of the common threads is that they emphasize the value of what she brings not only in the perfume itself, which they call a very expensive perfume, and we know it's worth more than a year's wages, but the fact that she brings an alabaster jar, it is valuable too. And I love that Mark says she broke the jar and poured the perfume out, because that for me is an image of her. <laughs> the jar is destroyed, like the jar's gone too. It's all poured out for him, for love. I'm struck 
by the fact that this woman's lavish worship does not take place in a temple or in a particularly holy place, but in someone's home over dinner. And also, she's not surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing as her. She's on her own in what she's doing and how she's responding to who Jesus is. And it makes me wonder, and it challenges me to think, is it more effective to measure whether God really has our wholehearted devotion, not by how we worship him here corporately, but how we individually respond to Jesus's presence in the ordinary places of our lives when other people aren't doing the same thing. Her worship is lavish because it costs her dearly. She brings her best and she pours it out. She breaks the jar. She doesn't bring a little bit of perfume. She doesn't take some home in a Tupperware. She pours it out and she is acknowledging um, she's not deliberately squandering anything or being, being irresponsible for the sake of being irresponsible, but what she's doing is acknowledging the immense preciousness of Jesus' presence with her and who he is. And her heart-led response is that he's worthy of it all. To her, the perfume of incredible value is not of the highest value in that moment. Jesus is. And if we choose to live a life where we say, Jesus, you're the most valuable thing, then it will cost us something. It might cost us a lot, in fact. I don't know if you have felt moments in your life where maybe something else has come in and, um, and it's fighting for first place in your heart and you feel that tension and it's uncomfortable. I know there's been a time in my life particularly I can think of where I have put something else I wanted right in first place. And trying to hold Jesus in second with the Holy Spirit in me, being a follower of Jesus, trying to hold him in second, felt a little bit like trying to hold like a big beach ball under the water times a million inside myself. It just felt uncomfortable. It felt wrong. Because the Holy Spirit in me will always point me back to loving Jesus with more of myself, with all of myself, because I wasn't made to love him just a little bit, but I was made for him. Wholehearted devotion will point our worship back to Jesus at the expense of other things. Maybe it is a career choice. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something else. There might be a great cost for it. This woman brings a sacrifice of worship. She does not get given another bottle of perfume in return. But she knows in anointing Jesus for his burial that there is a much greater sacrifice coming for her so she's willing to pour it all out for him. Do I live a life of lavish worship? Do I go all in because he's worthy of it? Second thing is wholehearted devotion might look reckless. I am really not a reckless person. I, don't, I, I try not to make reckless decisions. For me in my life, recklessness has looked like um, sticking my thumb into a plug socket on the morning of my final A-level exam to try and fix it and giving myself quite a violent electric shock, um, or getting out of a car to get a better photograph of a bear on the side of a highway. I'm not naturally very reckless. I don't actually regret the photograph of the bear, but I'm not naturally very reckless. But if we love God with all of our hearts, it might make us act in a way that to other people around us, we might look reckless because it'll make us bold the world we live in does not have a box for wholehearted devotion to Jesus of Nazareth. And people who don't acknowledge the God of heaven, it's going to look weird sometimes when you love him with all that you are. Wholehearted devotion looks like Elijah dousing wood with water and then praying to God for fire. Wholehearted devotion looks like Gideon reducing his army to 300 men before facing armies of thousands. 
out of devotion to God and obedience to his word. Just like Elijah and Gideon did something that will have looked reckless to the people around them, she did something. She did what she could to express the inexpressible worth of the one in front of her. And it might have looked reckless. Another thing that, the, that all the gospel writers um, comment on, they comment on the value of what she brings. They also comment on the fact that there are people around her who react with indignation to her who criticize what she's done. And in Mark, he records the actions of, of the response of just the other people present. And he says, they said this, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. She's surrounded by other people who don't see the ultimate value of Jesus in the way that she does. And it's not that in any way it would have been a bad thing to give the money to the poor, but she's saying that in this moment, the presence of Jesus is the most valuable thing. And she pours it out. And we can expect to similarly find that there will be people in our life who will look at our decisions, will look at what we do, will look at how we live and might think, why this waste? I don't know if you guys maybe have friends or maybe you're even here tonight and you're like, why this waste? But I know I have friends who, who might look at parts of my life and think, why this waste? Maybe people will look at how much money you give away and think, why this waste? Or think, or look at your career decision and think, why this waste? Look at your singleness and think, why this waste? Or your marriage and think, why this waste? A life lived in holy obedience to God and think, why this waste? Wholehearted devotion might look reckless. It might look like a waste. It might be misunderstood. And it might be by all sorts of people too. Interestingly, the, the different gospel writers identify different groups of people responding to her with indignation. In Mark, it's just the people who were present. In Matthew, it's the disciples. It's other Jesus followers who point the finger. In Luke, it's a Pharisee, the religious elite. And in John, it's Judas, someone whose heart was turning away from Jesus and was opposed to him. But things are only wasted if they're spent towards no purpose. And this woman knew Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. So with her eyes open to who he is, she anoints him for his burial. It's not a pointless act. It's not reckless, but it is bold. Wholehearted devotion is what God wants. Third thing. I love how in Mark 14, Jesus speaks to the people who criticize her and says, she did what she could. All we can do in response to God really is worship. It's hard to know what people want. We have constructed all sorts of hoops to jump through to try and figure out what people want in our lives. We talk about love languages, we make Amazon wish lists, we subtly, not subtly update Pinterest boards two days before our birthdays. It's hard to know what people want, but God is refreshingly clear about what he wants. In Joel chapter two, in the Old Testament, we see God's desire for wholehearted repentance from his people that runs throughout the whole Bible. Joel 2 says this, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. In 2 Chronicles, we're told that God's eyes actually roam throughout the earth, that God looks throughout the whole earth to find people whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's what he's looking for more than success or effort or good deeds, anything we can bring. He's looking for people's full heart devotion. In 2 Chronicles 16, there's a story of a, a king called Asa. And to cut the long story short, he, at one point when he faces difficulty, he goes to an earthly king for help instead of to Yahweh, instead of God. And Hanani the seer says this to him. 
The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing, and from now on you'll be at war. So where do we start? If that's what God wants, where do we start? Wholehearted devotion comes out of knowing who Jesus is. One of my biggest pet peeves in life and movies uh, is unrealistic love stories. Um, don't get me started on Hairspray. Tracy, Tracy Turnblad and Zac Efron do not have a conversation and then suddenly they're in love with each other. Um, or Yes Man, where uh, I cannot watch that movie again. Jim Carrey is about a thousand years old and then Zooey Deschanel falls in love with him. Absolutely not, can't, can't stand it. So. I'm along with the rest of the world, um, currently making my way through One Tree Hill again on Amazon Prime. Um, not good, wouldn't recommend, don't do it. And what I can't stand is that in Tree Hill, the formula for love seems to be to look at Lucas Scott for eight seconds, just like make eye contact for eight seconds, there you go, you're in love, boom. Unrealistic love stories are frustrating because you look at people and you're like, you don't know each other. How can you, what, what is love? How can you be in love with each other? You don't know each other. It's hard to love someone if you don't know them. It's hard to love a God you don't know. Real, life-changing, wholehearted love for God, I think it comes out of knowing who Jesus is, knowing who he really is. For Elijah in 1 Kings, he knew God to be the living God. So he doused the wood with water and then asked God to send fire. For Gideon, he knew God to be the God who answered, who heard him and answered his prayers. And so he willingly reduced his army to 300 when asked to, out of obedience to Yahweh. In Mark 14:8, Jesus says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In the book of John, this woman is identified to be Mary, sister of Lazarus which means that she will have sat at Jesus' feet and worshipped him there and learned from him there. Sister of Lazarus, it means that she saw her brother die and then four days in the tomb later be raised to life by Jesus. She knew Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. He had revealed that to her. And so she pours oil over his head in a kingly anointing. Jesus says her story will be told wherever the gospel is preached. Her story is a story of a heart-led response to the gospel. And because wherever the gospel is preached, it begs a response. If we look at Jesus, if we look at what he did on the cross and that he was raised to life three days later, it begs a response. In Mark's account, this woman and Judas appear side by side. In 1410, it says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas here perhaps is a warning of the dangers of a fragmented heart. I don't know if Judas hated Jesus at this point, but I think he loved money more. And where this woman did, he obviously did not grasp in the same way the surpassing worth of the one in front of him. Because if we do understand the worth of the cross, if we understand what happens when Jesus died, when he's raised to life again, if we understand what that story is, it begs a whole heart response from us. A few days after the story in Mark 14, 
Jesus went to the cross to die for our atonement, that we might be made one with God, that there might be a divine exchange take place where he takes our sin and we get his holiness. He went to the cross for our justification, like a fair judge ruling us guilty and then paying the penalty himself. He went to the cross for our redemption, that he might buy us back from slavery to sin and make us free. He went to the cross for reconciliation, that we might be one with God, that we might be with him and for victory over sin and death now and forever. It begs a response. In Joel chapter two, God calls his people back to himself saying, turn to me with all your heart. Turn to me with all your heart. Have we? Have we responded? Have we turned to God with all our hearts in response to the gospel? Will we come to him today with all of our heart? One challenge, and then I want to pray with us. My challenge is this. Ask God to identify if there are any rival loves in your heart. And if there are, I suspect for most of us there are. Pray and recommit to loving Jesus with all that you are and ask him to teach you how. Ask him to help you.